Thank you, Amanda and Lisa. That was beautiful. Well, good morning, church. It is a joy to share God's Word with you this morning. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> My name is Daniel Bennett. I've had a rough week. You see how ministry ages you? Life is hard. Well, we're grateful that uh, Pastor Daniel can have a few days of vacation. And uh, <clears throat> I am just always blessed when I think of you. You hear me say this often, community is our middle name. Uh, I just, I can't say it often enough how much Janelle and I uh, are blessed to be a part of your church family. We love you so much. You, um, you have blessed us in ways that I, I can't even get my mind around, but I certainly can't explain it. We're grateful to be here. Our church has uh, grown in five years, and uh, uh, I'm amazed at, at the, the kinds of relationships that I have been blessed with because of my relationship with you. And I'm excited to see this kind of thing take place in our church. One of the things that, uh, as I thought about this message, uh, I chose a topic that I believe every single one of you need to hear. If you're old enough to understand the words that I'm going to use, you need to hear this. Uh, you think about the diversity of this group. There there are some common things that we experience. Speaking of diversity, do you realize how many nationalities or how many cultural backgrounds we have in this church? Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese, Russian, Ethiopian, Guatemalan, and if you go back just a, a generation or two, Mexican, Italian, German. And we, we also have people from exotic places like uh, Germantown Hills and Deer Creek. <clears throat> The point is we have a vast variety of backgrounds, but there is one thing that I know that every single person here has in common. You've heard me, some of you have heard me say this before, you, we are either in trouble, headed to trouble, or we're headed out of trouble. That is a universal human experience because we live in a fallen world. And in my role here, I have gotten acquainted with many of you on a very personal level, and I have seen heartache that crushes me. Over the years, uh, since 1999, I've been involved in biblical counseling, and, and I have been involved in helping people in their trouble uh, as a lifestyle, and I love it. Uh, I couldn't not do it. But there are times when I hear uh, from people, I hear their heartache, I see their pain, and feel it so deeply that, that I, I grieve with them, and I so, so wish I could fix it. You ever get that way? Just think of your kids when they come with, with some kind of owie. What do you want to do? You want to kiss it, you want to hold them, and you want to just hold the pain away, hold them until it goes away, but it doesn't. <clears throat> Inevitably, when I'm thinking, I want to take away the pain. I'm reminded 
that you and I have a God who is faithful. He is way more compassionate than I am, way more good and gracious and merciful, but he ain't taken the pain away. And so what is, what is my role then? My role is to put my arms around the people who hurt, the people who are caught, and take them to the God who can do something about their pain. That is my passion here this morning. That's why I've chosen this particular passage. I have shared with this passage with people over and over, over the years, and I have been amazed as I have watched God take people and literally transform them as they grab a hold of the passage that we're going to read. Please stand, if you would, in honor of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes to a church, by the way, a church of people that are full, full of problems, struggling, not doing so well in their walk with God, and he is saying, I love you, let me help you. Listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, now these things happened to them them being the Israelite people that he just talked about, as an example. But they were written down, look up here, they were written down for our instruction. The word instruction means to lay the truth of the Scriptures into your mind. Paul's passion is for you and me and the Corinthians, for us to get the instruction, see the example and get it laid into your mind so that it becomes a part of our world and thinking. These things were written for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Verse 12, therefore, significant point, therefore, here's what you do with it. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. God is faithful. If you don't remember anything else from this message, remember your God says, God is faithful. He will not let you. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Another, <clears throat> another therefore. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You may be seated. Please join me in prayer. Oh God, you are the faithful God. You are mighty to save. You're the Father of eternity, the God of all comfort, the God of righteousness, stunning righteousness, of God of grace. God have saved us, given us your Son. We implore you today to give us your Holy Spirit and help us grab a hold of the truth that you're laying before us. Help us embrace it, believe it, and live it to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, anytime you take a scripture and just start in the middle of a book without the expository foundation, it's pretty difficult, and I understand that. So I'm going to ask you to be patient with me because there's going to be a lot of things from the, even from this very text that we're just going to have to leave on the table. 
There's only a few things that we can grab a hold of today from this text. But in order to make sense of it, I've got I to gotta at least lay a, a little bit of the context of the letter of what Paul is driving at in this particular section of Scripture. So if you look at chapter 8, verse 1, we see here, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Paul is beginning a discussion about idolatry. And that discussion goes from 8.1 all the way into chapter 11. This is a huge subject, extremely important. In fact, I would argue to you that idolatry is one of the most important subjects in your life. So he's arguing against idolatry. Listen to how he begins to lay the foundation about this. Verse, verse um, 4, end of verse 4, there is no God but one. So all morning, we're going to be talking about this idea of idolatry versus true worship of God. And he lays it right out. No God but one. Then he explains about this God, verse 6, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, for whom we exist, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we all, are all things and through whom we exist. That, uh, <clears throat> we ought to spend a morning on that one or a few weeks. But the point here is this. Paul is making a very clear, strong argument. There is only one God, and we are created by Him, and we exist for Him. So the point of the passage, the point of this whole section is God and the gospel. Chapter 9, Paul lays out that argument eight times. He brings up the word gospel, and he says to the Corinthians, I deny myself for the sake of the gospel. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Keeps talking about that. God and the gospel, that's where we're going. Where are we going away from? We're going away from idolatry. Chapter 10, verse 16, another point he's making, instead of fellowship with idolatry, instead of eating meat offered to idols in this kind of a darkness, instead of that, he says, I want you to focus on communion with Christ, the broken body and the shed blood and the people of God. Come this way. That's another argument is worship and communion. Another argument, chapter 10, verse 31, what does he say? Whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, do all to the what? Glory of God. And then here's, here's a, another bookend, solid bookend, chapter 11, verse 1, B. Here's, he says, look, look at me, look at me, imitate me, be followers of me, be followers of me as I am of Christ. So the, the, the context of the letter, Paul is saying this is about God, the gospel, worship, Communion, the glory of God, imitating Christ. Now, how about that for a focus? We know where we're going in the context now. Now, who is he talking to? He's talking to the Corinthian people, a group of people who have recently come to Christ. They're living in a culture that's very corrupt, and they're struggling with that. They're not doing so well in their walk with the Lord. What are they struggling with? Selfish indulgence, self-confidence. Oh, yes, we can, we can rub shoulders with idolaters. We can eat meat in temples. We can hang out in the culture and not become darkened like the culture. You see the argument in their minds? 
confident in their knowledge, confident in their liberty, confident in themselves. Then in chapter 10, verse 1 through 6, he talks to them about the Israelites in the wilderness. All of them partook of the same bread, the same water, the same spiritual drink, and they, most of them, God was not well pleased. They were confident like the Israelites in what? Spiritual activity. Acts like baptism. Acts like communion that we're going to do today. Confidence in activity rather than confidence in King Christ and the gospel. That's the people he's talking to. And Paul lays it out clearly in verse 12. What does he say? If you have confidence in things like that, you are going to what? Fall. Stunning warning. We're, we're brought up short by verse 12. Verse 13 presents some hope. Look at me. This kind of hope, as we begin to unpack the meaning of verse 13, the hope mushrooms. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time to go through all three points today, so I'm just going to let you know up front, point number three is going to be about 30 seconds, so don't panic. I'm not going to keep you till uh, 1230, although I would like to. Point number one, your outline, what is he saying? My temptations are not unique. Verse 13, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on this, on this one sentence, and I want to take the words apart to help you see what they actually mean. The first point here is, my temptations are not unique. That is a truth that if you don't get it, if you don't believe it, if you forget it, you will end up isolated, depressed, struggling on your own, thinking you're the only one. This is a significant point to grab a hold of. So here we are with this I am not unique context in the middle of true worship versus idolatry. What does it mean to me? What does the word temptation mean? No temptation takes, uh, has overtaken me. Turn back to chapter 1 of James, if you would. Go back to chapter 1 of James. Oftentimes, like in our culture, you can't understand the meaning of a word unless you look at the context of the passage. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it's not exactly clear what the word temptation means. So I want to give you an example of how we can de define it. James chapter 1, verse 2. James is writing to a body of believers that have been scattered all over Asia. Why? Because they're afraid of being attacked and killed. Tremendous trouble. You talk about being in trouble, the ultimate trouble. What does he tell them? Count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, look up here, count it, all, count it all joy literally means to train your mind to think on what you know. That takes discipline, that takes effort, and that takes thought focus. But he expects people who are running in trouble to do that. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds, knowing, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The definition, in your notes, the definition for temptation then is testing or trials that serve as testing. Trials that serve as testing. No trial or test comes to you that's unique to you. 
if you're struggling with abandonment, fear, isolation, broken relationships, you're not experiencing something that every person in this room can't relate to, according to God's word. Temp- <clears throat> so the word temptation in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, first is a trial designed to be a test. What's the point? What is God's goal for a trial that would test you? Verse 3. Verse 3 of chapter 1 of James. What does it say? Or verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Who do you know that's perfect and complete and lacks nothing? Christ, right? Now, here's the goal between idolatry and God and the gospel God's goal for the trial that we are under is to make us more like Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Imitate me like I follow Christ. So we see here that 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is helping us understand how to get God's goal out of the suffering and trouble that we're in. Number two, there's another meaning for the word temptation. James chapter 1, verse 13. Skip down there and look at that. That describes another way uh, to use or interpret the same word. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. That is the same word translated in verse 2 as a test or trial, same word. Now it's translated temptation. How come? Because of the context. So what do we learn about this? This word means a solicitation to evil. So now I'm in the middle of a trial because I'm living in a fallen world. I'm being tested. Look at here. That my temptation is to turn away from God's goal and to go towards idolatry or sin. James 1 verse 13 says, I am tempted not by God. Verse uh, uh, 14, but each person is tempted Now, this explains how temptation works. When he is lured and enticed, when he is lured and enticed by somebody over here, somebody calling me, somebody drawing me, it's somebody out here, it's their fault that I am tempted. That's not what the text says. But that's how it feels, and that's often how we think. That's often what we tell ourselves. But this says something different. What it's saying is I am drawn away with my own desires to the point that I will convince myself of what's out here. Even though I know it's bad, I'll convince myself it's good, and I'll go for it. That's solicitation to evil, and it starts right here. I am responsible for that. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you look at that word in your notes, temptation, it is talking about two things. It is talking about the tests and trials of life that I experience because I'm in the heat of a fallen world and I am bowed down under the weight of it. It is also talking about the internal struggle that I am experiencing as I want to cut and run. I want to go after my comfort, my pleasure, my respect, um, being loved. You fill in the blanks. All of the idolatrous pursuits that would meet my so-called needs instead of going towards God and the gospel, the glory of God, and imitating Christ. That's the struggle. That's the commonality that we experience. And in that, 
in that, look at, look at me, in that, as I'm bowed down, next word, I am overtaken. <clears throat> the word overtaken is a violent word. It has a, the, the idea that Jesus, uh, in the garden, when he was arrested, he was violently grabbed and taken, taken hold of. That's the picture of you and me when we are in our common struggle of heat and temptation, it takes a hold of us. That explains what the person feels like when he is in the middle of life-dominating sin or just the intense news that your family member just committed suicide or the doctor called and says there is a lump. You need to come back today. It's that intense grip of emotion. Exodus 15, 15, it talks about that when Israel's enemies began to hear about the conquering Israelites that were coming, it says they were seized with fear. Violent overtaking. Matt Morgan uh, shared this with me. I think it's a great illustration. Here's what it looks like. I am being beaten up, overtaken, wrestled with by the, the school bully. He's taken me down to take my milk money. He outweighs me by 20, 30, 40 pounds, and I'm caught. What's that look like? How does it feel? I am seized, I am overtaken, I am in a state of panic, and I can fight for all I'm worth, but I will never get out. That's the picture. But, but, in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, in that fight, as you fight for Going this direction, and you fight against going this direction, God distracts the bully. And in the moment of distraction, you break loose. What is the first thing that you do as a 10-year-old getting away from the bully? Where do you run? Immediately, you run to the teacher, right? Our problem, I believe, if we live like the Corinthian, if we live like the Israelite, we think that we can still hang out with him and still cooperate with him, have meat with idols, and we suffer. No temptation has taken you, but such is common to man. The temptations are not unique, but they do overtake us, and it is a common experience. But God is faithful, and we'll get to that in a minute. What does it mean to have a common that's common to man? And how does that give me hope? Well, first of all, think about this. Like I said, even though we have a diverse group of people, we have many common experiences. This one here says you will never have a heat, heat moment where you're under the heat of life, the pressure of life. You'll never have a temptation you struggle with that's not common to every other person in this room, regardless of where they're from. Many of us, don't believe that. Many of us think that we are alone. Many of us end up isolated for fear that people will look down on us and see us for the dark person that we actually are. Truth be known, if I am th thinking about the fact that my experience is common, then I am going to get down on the same level with you and I'm going to listen to your pain knowing that I can get where you are regardless of how tough or how bad your situation is and I will also be humble enough to tell you just how broken I am and how 
much I struggle. Common the man truth ought to break this church down where there's no barriers and we're open and honest. And your care groups ought to be filled with honest sharing. Why? Because nobody's got a corner on righteousness. Another thing that ought to, ought to change in the way we relate to people is when our spouse comes to us with a really grievous sin against us, instead of reacting in righteous anger, or self-righteous anger, I should say, we ought to be thinking common, common. This person has sinned against me significantly, but how much have I sinned against God? And instead of condescending, and unforgiveness, I get down on their level and say, let's go to Jesus together because we have a common need for his righteousness, something neither of us have. Common to man also, it not only humbles me to be honest and open, it not only humbles me to be meek and forgiving to people around me, it enables me and motivates me to look around this crowd and say, I wonder who else is hurting like I am and how can I help them? Fourth thing it does. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. I want you to see this on the page of your Bible. This is back again where James was. Hebrews, James, Peter, John, Jude, way in the back. Book of Hebrews chapter 4. I want you to see for yourself what this common to man truth can do for you and bring you hope in the middle of your trial and suffering and your intense temptation. Some of you are caught in the grips of a sinful lifestyle and you want to break free. And it feels like you can't. Hebrews chapter 4 says something incredible about this common to man experience. Hebrews 4 verse 14, since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, is your high priest. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Doesn't matter how much or what kind of struggle you have, you have a king. You have a king who sympathizes with your fear, your weakness, your wretchedness, your repetitive sin. He understands it. We have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may be, receive mercy to find grace in time of need. Common to man gives me hope because I have a king, a God, who is fully man. And he knows what it's like to look through these eyes. Every temptation I will ever experience, he has experienced. What kind of temptation is that? 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. My king experienced that in Matthew 4 in the garden, or in the wilderness. Adam and Eve started it in the garden. Three, th three things, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life. And in the common denominator life experience, you will never experience anything that he, King Christ, doesn't understand and wasn't victorious over. Common to man helps me take hope in the fact that when I fail, I have a king who has perfectly performed righteousness for me and I can rest in his performance even though I consistently fall on my face and fail. Tremendous truth. 
as a king who knows. A king who says, come here with your sins. An open-armed armed king that wants you to bring your sin and brokenness to him. Point number two, I have a faithful God. <clears throat> I have a faithful God with open arms that's asking me and calling me to bring my problems to him. What does he promise? He promises you will not, he will not let you. He, listen, your king promises you, I will not, he's personal, I will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able to endure. He is personal. Look at me. Every person in this world is being weighed down with the fact that we live in a sinful world and the weight on our backs sometimes feels like it's going to crush us. Overtaken, right? No, no. He promises, this won't break me. He will protect me so the weight that's being placed on my back has come through the king, a sovereign king who is choosing to, to, to keep it coming or to stop it. So therefore, I know if I have an experience that is hard, that is harsh, that is difficult, it is because my king has said he wants me to experience it. Many of us really struggle thinking that I am, I am suffering because God is mad at me. God's children, thinking that the suffering that I experience is because God is mad at me. His anger for your sin is, tell me where, where is his anger? On the cross, exactly. Nailed to the cross, Colossians 2.14, nailed to the cross. 1 John 2, covered with his blood, propitiated. His anger is out. Why am I suffering then? Answer, well, why, why did Job suffer? Why did Joseph suffer? Why did John the Baptist lose his head? Why did Esther spend a lifetime to be prepared for abuse from a king? Answer, so that God would get glory. And my, did God ever get glory from those lives of hardship and suffering? God is personal with you as you are being weighed down. And don't lose sight of that. In fact, don't, you don't have to turn here, but I want you to, uh, I want to share this with you. Hebrews chapter 11 is a, the hall of faith. All these people that have gone through all this kind of a hardship, and he describes what it is. At the end of, uh, of the text here, the writer says, I'm running out of time. Can't tell you about all these people. Uh, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped lions, quenched fire, escaped the sword, were strong in weakness, mighty in war, for, uh, and put armies to flight. These are people with bucket loads of difficulties that God put on their shoulders and asked them to persevere, and they did. They had some mighty deliverances. There is a period and a space, and then the word some. Listen to what it says. Some were tortured. Some refused to accept release. Others suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment, stones, sawn in two, killed, went about destitute. My point is this. When you are in the middle of a trial, know that God personally chooses what it is, how much it is, and what you're going to do in it, what he wants from you in it. Some he delivers mightily. Others were tortured and cut in half. Is it because they're being punished? No. 
God's got a, a purpose that you don't know about. A faithful God promises that this will not break me, but He's asking me to undergo this kind of weight carrying for His glory. It won't break you. The other thing it promises, oh, by the way, what does it sound like in your mind when you get hit? Well, you're already down and you get hit with more. This is a, a Facebook uh, post of just recent time. My, thought was, uh, my first thought was, Lord, why this on top of everything else? Then I remembered that this accident was no surprise to God. There are no oops events in his plans for me. Now that is a person who's living, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. This I remembered. And then what she said? I started to thank him. Now here's a person who has bowed down almost to the point of breaking and has just been given another load and in, because of thinking about a faithful God, praises him, thanks him instead. Second promise that we get in this text is my God is a faithful provider. With the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. So here I am in the middle of idolatrous temptation and the glory of God. I'm just about to the point of exhaustion. I'm being hit with uh, a weight that just feels like I can't, I can't go on. I'm trapped. God promises a way of escape. So here's what it looks like. I am bowed down, looks like the end. The way of escape literally means there is a mountain pass revealed that I can escape through and get out of this certain death that I find myself in. God promises a way through the trial. Second promise he, he promises here. The thing he's going to provide is a way out that you may be able to endure it. What's the implication of the word endure? The implication is from here to there might be a while. And from here to there, it for sure is going to take endurance. I'm going to have to stand up under the load of it. That's the idea. He's going to make me capable to stand up under the load of it. Your, my temptations are not unique, but my God is faithful. He will personally orchestrate the events of my life the heat of living in a fallen world that bows me down, I'm being sinned against, I've been, uh, I've been betrayed, whatever that kind of thing is. When I'm overtaken with the fight of it and the temptation to cut and run, he promises to orchestrate all of it to give me a way out and then enable me to get through it. That's a faithful God's promise to every single one of you in every single circumstance because he is personally inv involved in your life if he is your king. <clears throat> Here's what it looks like in real life. When I get down, sometimes wondering, I share this with permission, I wonder if I'll be able to resume my normal activities and ministries, but I pray my heart will rejoice in whatever purpose, His purpose is for me. If you're a child of God and you're being weighed down, you know it's the weight has been chosen of God. Our challenge and responsibility here is to seek his way out. And like the little kid and the bully, as soon as there's an opening, you run through it. 
and you don't choose to flirt with sin or idolatry. Third point, and then I'm done. Last page, turn your notes over. Communion, I believe communion in a broad sense is God's way to equip the church to persevere. What do I mean by that? Well, you're going to take communion. That's one piece of it, but it's a whole lot more than that. When God's people commune with Christ on a daily basis in quiet time and through the day, we are first communing with the idea, the truth, that my king has adopted me and he has made me his righteousness. And I rest in that. That's who I am. I am an adopted child of the king. I'm blood-bought, blood-bought, and blood-washed, and I am headed for glorification. In the meantime, he's asking me to persevere in prayer, meditating on God's word, communing with God's people, and trusting God's way through it in obedience. Last thing is my constant communion is God's purpose. I'm focused on God's purpose for my life. What is it? The same context of the letter. God, the gospel, worship and communion as opposed to idolatry, the glory of God, and imitating Christ.